to Bill Roden on Sports. Taking you inside clubhouses, locker rooms, and boardrooms, legendary sports columnist Bill Roden gets inside the heads and beneath the veneer of the men and women who play and own the games we love. Hey, hello, everybody. This is uh, Bill Roden, Bill Roden on Sports. Jamal, hey, how are you doing? Uh, I'm sports good. attorney person. I'm good. I mean, I'm, you know, the Mets just took a tough loss, so I'm, I'm a little depressed. To well, be take honest. it off. Oh, don't, don't worry. This I, guess terrible. I, I should it's be terrible. used to this, right? Don't worry. This comes up by the time by the time Mets fans hear this on Friday, they may be out, out the race already. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. And uh, Brian, Brian Delindic, over yes. here. How are you? Thrilled to be here, Bill. Thank right. you very much. I don't see any... I, we call you the wine guy. I don't see any wine. There's wine uh, right over I'm there. I'm sorry. I'm Chilling. sorry. I said, jump, jump the damn gun again. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And um, Seth, hello. How are you doing? Hey, Bill. Seth Nyman. <laughs> 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 hey, but I'm really, 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 we have a very, 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 very special, special guest, wow. uh, unexpected guest. Um, my special guest today is Gerard Jeffrey Roden, who is... My younger brother, Gerard Jeffrey is my younger brother, and he's visiting from Germany, where he has been since 1989, working as an opera singer, an operatic tenor, and um, it's very fascinating. I started, well, anyway, Gerard, welcome to the show. You, you just lived such a fascinating, fascinating life from the south side of Chicago to living and working as a operatic tenor. Anyway, welcome to. Uh, who would have ever thought when we were playing in the backyard in Chicago, uh, tackle football in the snow, that 30, 40, whatever years later, we play. Anyway, first, let's, let's everybody hear your voice. Uh, welcome, Gerard. Okay, thanks for the great invitation. And whoever thought 30 years later, I'd still be 18 and you'd be older. Yes, right. You're gonna have to get. You're gonna have to used to Gerard's German humor. He kind of slides it in there. But no, seriously, Gerard, this is really great. Actually, you know, Gerard visits every once a year because you know in, in Germany they actually take opera and the arts very seriously. And so he gets a a, a, a how, how much vacation do you get? Six weeks vacation. The theater closes for six weeks in the summertime, and that's our time. It's during the year for the other ten months. We usually have a lot of work to do, and it's hard to get away for more than three or four days. Yeah, so you get that. That's actually good. But you know, it's, 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 it's you were saying we were talking about this the other day, and we'll back into it. The difference between opera and the opera circuit in Germany and Europe. Let's say Germany versus in the United States. And basically, I was asking you, was it more competitive uh, here versus there? Um, but but you, what were you saying about the, the level of competition in Germany versus, versus here, just living the life of an opera singer in Germany versus here? Well, it's different. Obviously, in America, you're doing an opera, maybe three or four performances, perhaps five performances, and then you go on to the next piece, maybe the next theater. And in Germany, we, we do 15 to 18 performances of the same piece, let's say in the smaller theaters. If you're in a place like Mannheim or Köln, they might even do it over three or four seasons. I sing in the opera chorus 50 performances uh, from the Zauberflöte, the, the magic flute, in one, one and a half years. And we also have 50 performances of the Fledermaus, uh, the 
This is an operetta from Richard Strauss, from, Richard Strauss, from Johann Strauss. And so you're talking about 100 performances just of two pieces in a, short, in a short time. And in America, it's a little bit different than that. We think the Santa Fe Opera, was, I, I was in, a, uh, in the Santa Fe Opera, I was an apprentice. We did 12 performances of these uh, uh, of these operetta, and that's a lot. So I think the big difference is, is that in America you're talking about usually four or five performances as opposed to 15, 18, or more. So mm -hmm. as a singer, that means you really get in-depth contact with something. I sang the old Tamino und die Zauberflöte 50 times in Ulm over one and a half years. And it's great you know, to do a part that often. You know, it's made the transformation to see my brother transform into a Chicago into like a German. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Wow. You, know, you know, if you get his answering machine, you know, I mean, he's in German. He forgets. I mean, he, it's like, say, say, take me. Can you sing Take Me Out to the Ballpark in Germany? In German? Oh, before we go, I'll, I'll have to put put a couple of thinking cells on that. Wait, do you know, do you know, Take Me Out to the Ballpark? Take right. Me Out to the Ball... Okay. Take me out to the ballpark in German. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's good. I like that. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be a long show. <laughs> God, every time you know I'm taking Gerard is a huge he's a big tourist guy, right? And you know, if you grow up in New York, we just see you know, you not grow up in New York, you're in New York, you see all this stuff all the time. You know, but I've been walking and going to like we've gone to the World Trade Center, we've gone to the Observatory, uh, we've taken uh, two bus tours. We've been two bus tours, like a two-day bus tour. All the stuff I've never done. I said, well, let me actually, you know, take take a tour and stuff. You know, so it's actually, but it, it but it's been very interesting. Let me ask you a question. Uh, before I, Gerard is a big sports fan because this is still Bill Roden on sports, and the, and the requisites, no matter if you're Ron Carter or or anybody, you got to be a sports fan. So Gerard is a huge. But you're you're a typical Chicagoan in that. It has, although you've been from Chicago, University of Illinois, to San Francisco, to Germany, you're still a dyed-in-the-wool Chicago fan. Who who are you who are you the big fans of? Chicago Bears, Chicago Blackhawks. I was living in San Francisco when San Francisco started winning Super Bowls, and that was hard because the Bears are kind of the second team. They beat us in three championships, and I was working at Macy's at the time. I remember going into work. They had fun with me. Yeah. Tough game, huh, Gerard? Tough game. Yeah, uh, but you but you you love the Cubs, which is a, is a little unusual. Everybody mostly, has to, you most, have to love the Cubs. Most black, most black people, you know, because we grew up in the South Side of Chicago. But if you, if you grow up in the South Side of Chicago, you like the White Sox. You know, you like the Cubs. I guess that's why you're an opera singer, right? It's always a little <laughs> offset. Uh, the Bears, we always talk about the Bears. You love the Bears. It's one of the most futile pursuits. Right? You know, pray for Jay Cutler. Actually, I think we're going to be getting some really good draft picks next year. I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. <laughs> ain't ain't, ain't going to happen. But the, Bear, the Bears have actually won something, at least in my lifetime. In 85, they won. The Cubs, I don't know. 103 years, isn't it? 105 years since they've had a championship. Yeah. yeah it makes, makes me uh, feel pretty good as a Mets fan. Yeah, the, the Mets is, is the hopeless pursuit. Uh, but let me ask you this. Um, you know, I, in, in the process of... of uh, saying I think you should be on the show, I start actually talking to you. I think sometimes when you talk to your siblings and you follow, we follow each other's siblings' career and just take things for granted generally. Sometimes you don't actually ask, well, what happened here? For example, you told me that when you were 13, that's when you decided that you were going to be an opera singer. 
13. I'm five years old. Well, we said we wouldn't get into ages, but <laughs> I'm five years old. So you're 13, and you say, yeah, I decided at 13 I was going to be an opera singer. And I was really starting, I said, wow, that's, so you knew back then at 13, I'm like, what the hell, where, I was 18 and had no clue. I mean, I'm, you know, going off to college or something, but how did you know at the age of 13, kid, Southside Chicago, that you wanted to be an African-American Southside Chicago, that you were going to be an opera singer? What sort of, I mean, what led you into that? Well, you, you always say you know, Afro-American, Southside of Chicago, but obviously I had contact with some other people who were Afro-Americans in the Southside of Chicago who were very interested in classical music. And I think my path was uh, after our mom died, we were both very young, I was kind of a quiet kid and spent a lot of time alone. My parents, my stepmother and my dad sent me to a theater school, the Sammy Dyer School of the Theater, and I learned acting there, and I also I earned. We'll start again. I learned acting there, and I learned that I really loved being on stage. And I think a couple of years later, I was in an extra chorus. Uh, what do we call it? A um, now we're having language. We're going to German. The All City High School Chorus, right. which was uh, that's a big deal in Chicago, right? Yeah, being, right. being, being an All City All City Choir in Chicago. Yes, yeah, so select from. 53 different schools, 234 singers. And uh, I walked in the room for the first time and saw these young kids who were really inspired about classical music. I, said, I love this, really love this. And our parents were singing in Chicago Symphony Chorus and in the Grand Park Chorus. So we were always around classical music. And I just fell in love with it. I said, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. I want to spend every second of my life learning now how to be a singer. And I want to get on stage. And that's important because you're asking about what is the path. And I think obviously you have to study and learn, but you have to want to be on stage. Someone told me if you really insist that you're going to be on stage, it's going to happen. If you don't, it's not. Right. And we used to see. I thought you know we used to go. Gerard. I thought Gerard was going to be a quarterback because we used to go. I was. I, you know, I played. We went to the same high school. I played. You know, football. You, you follow me. You played football. But we used to go to Oakdale Park, and you were you were Johnny Unitas. And you were either Johnny Unitas or Y.E. Tittle or uh, who else? Johnny, you, Johnny Unitas. He, he was my favorite back then. Yeah, Johnny Unitas. I was Raymond Barry. Because uh, Raymond Barry, I mean, that was always... I patterned myself. I mean, Paul Warfield was a guy I really liked, but I just couldn't do that. I mean, I couldn't do what Paul Warfield did. He was quick, you know. But Raymond Barry, you could actually look at him and study his moves and go, so Gerard, you know, we, we, we do that. But... Again, so you, but you made this U-turn. While I kind of continued down the jock path, you know, you were doing this. Now, Dad, our father, our father who passed away just a couple years ago, two, three years ago, sang, he was a singer, right? He was a mathematics teacher, but he sang in the, he sang in the Grant Park thing. and He sang in the Grant Park chorus. He played saxophone, played piano, and obviously my father and stepmother were huge. Jan, Jan, Jan. Janet, yeah, were huge, huge influences and my early musical development. Janet was my first uh, piano teacher when I was about eight or nine. I studied with her for two or three years, and that was kind of opening the doors. She also opened the doors for me to get in Chicago Symphony Orchestra Chorus, where I got to work with really famous conductors as a chorus singer, with Georg Scholte, with Carlo Maria Giulini, um, Istvan Kertes, who else we have? James Levine, Daniel Barenboim, and this as a 16-year-old, that was really fantastic for me. And that was just because Janet kind of opened this door, and I got to audition for them. Hmm. You mentioned all these names. So now, how did you? I guess the question is, what? I, I kind of generally know this. So you went to the University of Illinois, and you studied with uh, William Warfield. 
But but except he he came, what two years, two three years later after you were there. Right, he came in my junior year. I was actually. Um, no one really took me seriously as a singer. I was an actor and taking voice lessons, working on my bachelor in music, but I didn't have one of these voices. You walk in the room and say, oh, God, this guy is a great singer. And there are a lot of people who are trying to convince me to become a conductor because I seem to have a little talent in that direction. Uh, but I wanted to sing. So my first two years, I had like four different teachers. And when William Warfield came to the university, they wanted him to have other singers, but all the black singers should work with him. And I was really very, very fortunate to work with him, not, not just as a teacher, as a mentor. He spent, he was Uncle Bill. Everyone who worked with him, he was, he was Uncle Bill. We spent a lot of time there. There are always the best steaks and his uh, lemmy, lemon gooey cake. And uh, just we had a lot of fun times with him. Well, he worked with the great, the great tenor who died recently. Died. I mean, he was a great bass baritone, <coughs> famous for... Yeah, Old Man Old River, River, but in Europe they knew him as a as a song, as a recitalist. You know, America always sing Old Man River and then the musicals, but he was a fantastic song singer, and I was very lucky in the university to work with two excellent artists, with William Warfield and John Wustman, who was working with Pavarotti at that time, uh, and felt very, very blessed. Mm. Why, why was it that they wanted all the bl that they wanted you to work with a black? Uh, teacher at the time? Was it just because, obviously, because you were black also? Or was there some uh, difference in the way that black people supposedly sang? No, I think they, they understood that we needed a black role model. I right, think there were really right. the positive reasons. They knew that having a black man as a teacher, uh, and particularly all of the black students were men, uh, that was, was a very important thing for us. I think really only, I mean, I got transferred because I'd already been through four teachers and they were hoping this guy could have some <laughs> luck with me. Uh, but that was what it was about. And I was very, very happy because you, you underestimate what that's like being a black person and being a singer and not having as many role models out there. I was very lucky right. to have met George Shirley um, many years later in the Santa Fe Opera in the cantina uh, uh, there, but that's that's what that was about. But you know, I mean, we we had the same conversation just a little while ago, and what it means for a young black guy to have—I mean, not even an old black guy. We had, like I was telling you, Dean Baquet is the executive editor of the New York Times. And I can't tell you, not that I have a lot of contact with him or go up and you know talk to him all the time, but just the fact that you know that one of the most powerful people in the newsroom is is an African American. It's just it's a, it's a reassuring it's a reassuring thing, and also for a young journalist to say that you know what you can do this. I mean, this is not out of the realm of possibility that you can be the executive, just like people with with a Barack Obama to have a black man in the White House, whether you agree or disagree or whatever. Says, wow, that this is something that is basically attainable. I'm sure when Hillary hopefully uh, gets into the White House. You know, I'm sure that a lot of young women... Gets back into the White House. Gets back. Well, yeah, she'll come in. Yeah, you know. Um, a lot of young women will say the same thing. So, yeah, so with Warfield, I mean, I could kind of see the idea that it's not like you have that many black people in opera, and you, if, you got, if you have the opportunity to have a William Warfield come and study, say, hey, you know, you have a role model. And fortunately, he was, he was cool, you know. But let me, let, me ask you, let me ask you this. Well, I'm kind of jumping ahead. I mean, I want to talk about how you got your, your role, your road to get to Germany, because you've lived in Germany full-time since 1989. Correct. Right? Which is, how much, that's, somebody do the math, that's a long time. That's a long, and, and working strictly as a full-time musician. 
That's a Correct. long time. But what I'm curious, and we've talked about this before, you know, the his, there's a history of, of, of African-American artists going, leaving the United States and going to Europe, whether it's Paris, what, just to kind of be, feel free. Yeah. And I, I was wondering if you felt the same way when you left the United States and you went to Germany. Did you feel that sense of freedom as a black man going to from the United States to Germany? Did you feel free? Absolutely. It was 1987. We started a tour of Carmen Jones that was going to go on for seven and a half months. And we were in Hertogenbosch in Holland. Uh, Holland? Holland. We're in America. In Holland at the time. And all of the, the black cast, the singers were all black. Most of the orchestra members were white. Not all, but most of them. We got off that bus and started rehearsing. We were going to, co to coffees in the afternoon. And we, we all felt this. We felt this, this freedom of not walking down the street and having people look at you as if you were from Mars or you were ugly and stupid. Uh, I'd been living in San Francisco and really experiencing that walking into a bar and, and the heads turn when you walk in and then uh, they say, oh, there's another black guy and they look away. And these are subtle things that were eating into the confidence and, and feeling of self-worth for all of us. And suddenly you walk in there in Holland and it's not there. And you know, none of us wanted to leave. None of us wanted to go back ever again <laughs> for living in America. Wow, really? Yeah, and it's it's uh, and I have seen a lot of changes in America since then, and I'm not going to see there's no racism in Germany. I can talk about that later on, some things I experienced there that aren't a lot of fun, but this this basic thing of, of being a black man and suddenly being something that's special and, and interesting to talk to and, mm. and, and tell me your story. And uh, when German said it very nicely, I was sitting at coffee with some elderly woman one who, by the way, was telling me she had met Hitler and said, well, you know, he's not such a bad guy. I, I find him really, really very nice. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, but they're saying, you know, I understand as being a black person and being in the situation what you must have gone through mm. to, to be here. And mm. that's, I got a lot of that from people, even if they didn't say it exactly like that. And uh, it, 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 it's true. And what's it been like, I mean, even now, I mean, you know, when you, because I asked you about this, uh, about police violence. When you're over there, I'm sure people asking you, you said that, you know, when the Charleston massacres, people, I guess people keep asking you, what do you think about that, Gerard? I mean, what, I mean, what's it been like living in Germany and then seeing these, in this case, sort of the police violence and against the black community? I mean, what's it like seeing that from abroad as opposed to, you know, being here and Many things. It's, it's, really, it's horrible, obviously, because uh, there are some naive friends of mine who don't believe that racism really exists and as much as it used to. And you try to tell them, well, you know, look at what the Republican Party is trying to do to Obama just because he's a black guy. And, you know, we'd rather burn the country, rather have the country go down, you know, the hell in the basket than have this guy be, be successful. Mm -hmm. You know, on the, the, the Magic, jo uh, Magic Johnson situation with the former owner of... Uh, the Clippers. The, the Clippers. Yeah, the Clippers. Donald Sterling, yeah. Yeah, I mean, those, these are the things that people say that, well, what do you, what do you think about this, you know? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, they're very aware of what it, uh, this aspect of being black in America and a lot of other things. Obviously, the Bush years were very, very, very difficult for a lot of Americans in Germany and in Europe. Uh, I had experiences where Arabic and Turkish people would walk by me and spit on the ground when they walked by me for a long time. And that changed. The second when Obama became president, that changed like overnight. And people wow. would walk up to me who I didn't know and congratulate me <laughs> that this man was president because they were seeing America taking another role uh, in, in the world. And, uh, you know, 
Do people still? I mean, but you, you, you've not. You're still a U.S. citizen. You haven't. You haven't given up U.S. citizens for German citizens, right? No, I haven't. Again, Britain. That's not a perfect country, and and so the head shaking. You know, Obama isn't isn't God, not a, a perfect uh, person. But I think what the country of what's become the symbol again for what it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, that the Langston Hughes poem. Let America be America again. I think that's what people were starting to feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, when Obama was being president, even having goals of, of where we could go. And and obviously, you know, people don't like to hear that we're about as broke as Spain. It's just that we have more, we're more. What, Germany? No, we oh, mean America. No, no. We're about as broke as no Germany is not broke, uh, but we just have more possibilities uh, to to deal with it. And that might have been one of the reasons that was pulling back militarily. But yeah, that's it's a great thing because America is going on other diplomatic missions. I mean, Michael Jackson has probably done more for the American ideology than a lot of missiles have. Really? Remember, there, during the, during the uh, yeah, even with all the problems, there, there was during one of the Gulf, the Gulf Wars, there were protests in, in Iran, and they were saying, you know, down with America, down with America, and you look really closely, and the guy in the front row wearing a Dallas T-shirt, uh, a Dallas Cowboys T-shirt, and said, yeah. How, speaking of Dallas, the, the oh, Cowboys. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cowboys fan, yeah, oh, okay. Cowboys. Dallas yeah, Cowboys t-shirts are everywhere. I know. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you're talking about influences overseas and how and how they were look, America's looked at uh, overseas. What, what role do you think sports plays in that, and what, what do you see there? Oh, a huge role. I think uh, it's very interesting. We were talking about Serena Williams, Williams just a while ago. I think at the time when, when Chris Effort was breaking rev- records, when Chris... When, uh, Steffi Graf was breaking rec- records. People hated them. People, we got to stop Steffi. We got to stop Steffi Graf from doing this. And there's a very big positive spin on what Serena Williams is doing. It's probably, possibly what happened to uh, Monica Salas that changed a lot of that. Trying to always have a positive spin. Yeah, we want to support this person trying to break records. But obviously, it's, it's a very positive, very positive thing. Well, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if I agree. I mean, I think people really resented Serena Williams for a long time, particularly in the United States. I don't know how she played out overseas. Or maybe overseas people liked it, but I think in the United States, there was a, people had a big problem with her, her sister, her dad, just winning and dominating, so I don't, you know. Well, the first, it is different. That's one of the reasons I told you why I'm glad I'm in Europe. It is different in Germany, I'm sure, than what was going on in America. There wasn't this resentment uh, for these two because the, they realized that the sport needed them and a lot of these girls were growing up and being they were the idols because mm-hmm. you know Lindsay Davenport the Williams sisters Monica Sealers they changed tennis I mean Steffi Graf is a great great player and how good did people have to be to, to turn the corners looking at YouTube in the match between Steffi Graf and Serena Williams Oh God! Really big, one of the big tournaments, and you see these gladiators of very young Serena Williams and the master Steffi Graf, and you saw how great she was and what she brought out in Serena Williams, and that's well, many people, at least from my side of the ocean, realize that that the sport was going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Let me ask, let me ask you this: uh, You guys have any any more sports? I kind of got a, an opera, an opera question. Not not so much opera question. This year, I think I told you, I just started going to the opera this year, you know, which was, you know, very illuminating after all these years. Because we used to always have a thing about, I mean, Gerard clearly grew up as a classical guy. Now, I, I more became like a jazz person, you know. 
Um, in fact, one of the stories, should I tell you the Victory at Sea story? Yes, I think I'll go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a, it's Oscar and Hammerstein, right? Oscar and Hammerstein, Victory at Sea. There's a famous, there's a famous album called Victory at Sea, which is, if you don't have it, you should get it. It's, it's, it's really great, called Victory at Sea. That's a classic thing. So when Gerard was in kindergarten, right? Could have been kindergarten, yeah, probably I, was. I know, yeah. he's kind of erased it. He wanted to do a presentation of, you know, and he wanted to use Victory at Sea. And so they came out with a, a, a jazz version of Victory at Sea. So me being the older brother, I'm saying, Gerard, you ought to play the jazz version of Victory at Sea. Uh-huh. And of course, Gerard being the, you know, you know, you know, he said, no, I want to play, I want to play the classical version of the Victory at Sea. So of course, I switched albums. I put the, the jazz version inside the cover. And so, he walked, you know, walked, you know, and all that. And I walked him to school, and it's like as I was walking away, there's this driver came tearing out of the school, said, "You fool!" He was like, because he discovered it was missing. And I, even when I tell the story today, I still feel very, I feel horrible about that Gerard. It's like I don't think he does. I think he enjoys <laughs> telling. No, no, I really, I really feel terrible about it because you know it's like. But did how did I never asked you how the presentation went? We don't remember that. Maybe I didn't I didn't get to do it that day. <laughs> I think that's later. Is that I still have a scar on my head when you hit me with a gun in my head? You know, I don't know about that. But but let me ask you this: the opera. I start. I start. I just start going to the opera. I saw. Um, I forgot what I saw. Carmen. I think I saw Carmen. Tales of Hoffman. Yeah. Tell. Yeah. And tale. the Merry Widow. Yeah. And it was actually really very quite. You know, delightful, um, and it was the, the pageantry, the majesty. It was very dramatic, and that was it. And the music was really great, and I said, "Ah, oh, wow!" You know, and, and I guess what I was wondering as I was looking at the the Met, how does the Met, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Opera, how does that compare with, you know, some of your your best theaters in either, you know, like in Germany? Right now, you're in Ulm, right? You've been in Ulm, Munster, and Wiesbaden. Uh, how do how does how does like the Met compare? With some of the, as you call it, the A, the A-list houses around. Well, around obviously, the, world. Yeah, the Met and the uh, Wiener Staatsoper in Vienna uh, are houses that really dominate the, the the first line. That's where people want to sing. Mm-hmm. Stuttgart is an international star house, and I was telling you I had a, the great pleasure of singing with Angela Dinoke when she was in Ulm. We did Cosi van Tutte together, uh, Wozzeck we sang together as a tambourmanjor. And it was, and also Onyegin, um, Eugene Onyegin, we all did it together. Eugen Onyegin, sorry, we did it together. And she's just a fantastic singer with a great career. And she was singing in Stuttgart, but also at the Met and Wien and all over the place. So there are houses where all the big stars go, and mm-hmm. that's kind of that's the difference. We're kind of the beginning house where people start off, and they try to to start their careers in, 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 in places like Ulm, Passau, Pforzheim, those kind of places. But, but, you, but how does it just the building itself uh, compare? Um, I mean, what, what, what are considered like to be the five greatest opera houses in the world? Well, what do you talk about great? You're talking about how big they are. Uh, I mean, Barcelona is big. It's also a house where stars appear. Wiener Staatsoper, the Met, La Scala, of course. Uh, are places Bolshoi these are places with really really high reputations where the stars the stars go La Finice is also uh, re- really big in terms of the reputation where the big stars want to go but I think the top ones the Met Wien 
Berlin, um, Covent Garden, natürlich, you can't forget that, in La Scala. Where is that? Covent Garden in London. Oh, I guess that's all that's about. Okay. And the stars, they don't say, oh, I was singing Covent Garden. He's well, I was singing in London. And, and you don't say, I was singing at the Mets, I sing in New York. That's the cool and way you're doing it. Also, people know. And what, so what's, what's been the biggest house that you, you sang at? Because you, you've had a couple different careers. Your, your first job overseas was in Wiesbaden, and you were in the, in the chorus, right? That, that was in 1989, right? That, that right. was sort of the, five, the, the big transition when you went from I think you were saying you were at Macy's. You were, you know, you're doing like a lot of people do. You were working different jobs, but finally, I think '87 or '89, right? When, when finally the first break came, when you were going to do what musicians or writers do, you were actually going to work as a full time musician, right? That was '87, '89. Well, that's, my career, so to speak, started in '87, and I was an apprentice in the. Santa Fe Opera in the summer, and after that, this tour started for seven and a half months. Um, I had a kind of a split for two years where I was trying to do some auditions that didn't work out. I came back and worked at Macy's, but always with the idea of getting back to Germany. And my time, the timeline that's still going on now started in October 89, and that's when I started working there, just before the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, which was really, really right. an exciting time to be in Germany. Right, because you said you were actually, you went, you actually went to Berlin, right? When we were on tour, I went to Berlin, uh, I was so stupid. I didn't realize that you couldn't bring money into East Berlin at that time. And uh, I happened to have a lot of money in my pockets because we were all over the place. I had money from Holland, from, from Spain, and from, from Germany. <laughs> and, and, and I changed uh, my East Marks already when I got in there. And this guy said, well, do you have any money? Oh, yes, I have you know, some Gulden. I have uh, some Schweizer Franken. I have some Frank. It was like a Christmas tree, pulling all these things and didn't realize that was illegal. <laughs> and suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> I was with my friend Walter then, and suddenly a guy comes, uh, excuse me, would you please come with me? And they took me away wow. into a room with no windows. Oh, you know, all these people, and he's like, Gerard, Gerard, are you ever going to come back? <laughs> yeah. I saw this movie, and uh, one guy was in a typing machine, and then one guy was asking questions, and another guy was standing behind the guy with the typing machine, and the uh, typewriter, they called it, okay. Uh, the typewriter, and he said, you know, where did you get this money? Why did you bring it in here? And what are you doing in Germany? What are you doing in East Germany? Where did you get this money? It's like these, the same questions. And they finally realized I was a tenant. And I was too stupid to smuggle any money in. And they believed me, and they let me out. But that was my the first, you know, first impression of East Germany. And I went outside, and it was very gray. And there these guys with, with rifles walking around in these gray coats that we know from movies and these Russian kind of hats. And that's what it looked like. Wow. I went to the Pergamon Museum, which was fantastic. Uh, bought a couple of things with the money that you had to spend because you didn't want to take it back with you. It was worthless. Um, and then I went there many, many years later. It was about five years ago. And it's great. Berlin is, is, is it's a great city. It's not what it was in the 20s. Um, but there's so much culture and in eating and and um, alternative culture there, and it's very multicultural. It's 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 a great place. But we can't go. I'm gonna I'm gonna visit. I'm gonna visit Gerard sometime in August. I'm gonna go to Paris for a couple of weeks. And but he told me he kind of guilted me. He said, "You mean you're gonna come?" You know, I, you know, I innocently told him, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna come to Paris." There's a silence. Gerard never gets mad that much except when I switch Victory of Sea covers. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, wait a minute, so you're going to come to Europe and you're not going to come to Germany to visit me at home. 
you know, after I every every year I come and visit, and I say, oh, no, of course I am. I mean, Jesus, in fact, when we leave here today, we're going to go and get the map and figure out how to take the four-hour train <laughs> down to Ohm, right? So that's going to be fun. Um, but there, there's, you know, so, so but the, when you were telling me, I, I guess I always, we would talk periodically just about your travels, because I'm up here dreaming, I think, 87, 87, I'm at the New York Times already, right? Right. 87, I'm in the New York, I'm at the New York Times, and you're kind of making your sort of first breakout thing. I'm talking to you. But what I didn't realize was how difficult it was. I mean, you had a lot of, I mean, not a lot of the setbacks, but I mean, it wasn't all, you know, you come here and then you make it, you, you come to the court, you, because you, 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 just tell me a little bit about that, because I found it very interesting about the ups and the downs. And I guess there's almost any artist that you, Every artist goes through this. It's not all just gravy, but particularly again, you making the transition to 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 to, to Germany. But what was it like for getting that job and, and keeping that job? And then just give us a brief rundown of Wiesbaden to to Munster to um, the the. the uh, well, actually, I'd like to version. start at at, at uh, Freilassing. Because uh, what happened after this tour is over, I had to go. I went back to the stage. I was dead. I couldn't sing for three months after doing 175 performances of uh, Carmen. Basically, were 50 as as Don Jose as Joe, and the other ones 125 in the chorus. Uh, I was like dead. So I went back and, and hung out for a while. Started taking lessons, and I came back in the fall of '87 to do auditions, and didn't happen. I was doing auditions. I was learning Germany, German, uh, and learning about Germany. And I had an accident playing volleyball. I tore my Achilles tendon mm. and had to be operated. And it was a fateful and important moment because I just stopped everything. And I said, okay, I can't just continue living this life as if, oh, this is going to happen. I need to make some big decisions. So I went back, let my ankle heal, worked at Macy's for a while to get money. I said, I'm going to do one more tense, one more time to come back here and do these auditions. It's either going to happen or it's not. And if this doesn't happen, I'm just going to stop singing because it costs so much, it takes so much energy, the training and, and getting up at 7 in the morning and practicing uh, when you're, you know, you're working somewhere. Uh, and it was hard. I said, if, if I can't do this really at professional at a high level, I don't want to do it at all. I don't want to sing community theater. Uh, I want to work with professionals and other people who have devoted their entire lives to doing that. So I went back and did some auditions, and things weren't happening. I met a teacher named Lisa Hagenau while I was doing a Magic Flute production, and she knew that there was going to be an opening in Wiesbaden because one of her singers was leaving. And she told the, the theater that she had someone who might be interested uh, as a tenor position, and I went there and I sang for them, and they loved it, but there was a problem. There had never been a black singer in the chorus in Wiesbaden. Hmm. And they had to take a vote if they wanted to have a black singer really? in the chorus. A vote of who? The chorus members had to vote if they wanted to have a black singer in the chorus. In addition to that, wow. I was from Chicago. The guy I was replacing <laughs> that, that was, was right, from Chicago. That's right, a big Chicago. thing. <laughs> from Chicago. Well, it was, because the guy I was replacing was also from Chicago, and they didn't like him. He was, <laughs> they said he was like a butcher. They said, do we want to take another guy who's from Chicago? And it was obvious that I wanted to be a soloist. Said, do we want a soloist who's black and from Chicago uh, in the chorus? And they voted about that. But the intendant said, I want this guy. Hmm. I want him. I want him to work here. The choral director said, "I want this guy to work here," and that was the word of God. And I was there in the next day, and wow. it was kind of dramatic for me because as, uh, my partner at that time had come, come 
from America to pick me up and bring me home for the rest of eternity, and this is going to be over. And this thing happened like the day that my visa was running out was this audition. And I said, I either get this job or it's over. And they offered it to me on the telephone, and I had to decide overnight, um, you know, a functioning relationship for nine and a half years or this career. And, uh, and what did we see? We went to the opera in Darmstadt, and we saw Madame Butterfly, which is so perfect, you know, about this soldier goes to Japan and leaves this woman behind and said, this is great. This is, this is the movie. <laughs> We're going to write this. Uh, so when, let me ask you a question. When did you find out about the, the, the black vote? I mean, was that in retrospect? Or did you find out that later? Or did they, you know, that they were voting if they wanted the black guy in the uh, in the chorus? Yeah, after I got the job, uh, Mike Vaccaro, he told me, that, yeah, they had, they had to vote about that. They had to, said, <laughs> they had to vote about it if they wanted a black guy because they never had a black guy in the chorus. So, they, you know, and I'm not going to tell you who voted what? But. <laughs> well, well, how'd you vote? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, you know I'm on your side. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, but I mean that that you you're talking about racism. There is different. You know, how does it? How is it different? You say in Germany there are some little. It's not you know peaches and cream. How does it manifest there? Well, first of all, this vote, it wasn't about not wanting black people. It's about want, wanting someone in the chorus who looks different. And that was the thing. Someone's going to stand out because he's black. Not, uh, you know, it's not the racial thing. Like it's the rock, a, rockets. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're going to look at him, and they're not going to see me, you know, is what, what they were thinking about it. Um, things that I have ex- ex- experienced walking down the street and, and having people, ladies, hold on to their purses all of a sudden and and. and you notice there's a confrontation. I talked with a friend of mine in Münster about that. He said, well, Gerard, beside the fact that you're uh, about six feet tall and black, you have a way of engaging people when you walk down the street with your eyes that is, people aren't used to that. You walk down the street, you don't just walk down, you look at people in the eyes and and they're, they're confronted and they feel uncomfortable about that. And sometimes people they won't hide all, all of a sudden. And you have, to, you know, have to remember that. And that, that's true. But there are a lot of little things, little subtle messages where people, oh, God, there's a black guy, you know, uh, i got to be careful right now. And that even happened in front of the theater sometime. We were doing uh, Tosca, and I was singing Cavaradossi, and walking into the theater where these people were paying a lot of money to see me sing <laughs> this role, walking by me, holding onto their purse. I said, honey, you know. <laughs> and so, if they, you know, like if they knew me, that's really happened a couple of times. They do that, and they say, Oh, hello then. Oh, we get to see in the You'll be throwing me that point after this. You know, uh, uh, something else that you were saying. Oh, so it's interesting in Germany, though, because they've got these immigration issues, right? Which almost makes black people seem like welcome, right? Because because you're, there are other groups that they're less crazy about seeing in Germany, right? Oh, exactly. Right, right now, particularly uh, the sons and daughters of the of the black soldiers. I mean, they're German. We were talking about that. You see these kids, and you can tell that they're part American, and they look at you. I was talking with Sharon about that, and how I greet black people is really very important because we can't do this American, hey, yo, hey, man, what's happening? Uh, that's how re- do you say that in German? Hey, man, what's going on? Oh, yeah, they don't really, they don't. There's they, no translation. The hey, closest brother. thing to Bavarian says, Sivos, you know, And so, yeah, it gets No, hey, hey, brother, what's happening? Is, it, can you, is there a translation? You say, you say it in English. I mean, if, you, you, if you're doing the jive talk, you do it in English. What's that, you don't tra- Yeah, you don't translate. <laughs> hey, boy, what's going on? <laughs> My brother. But go outside, broke your... Your bluder, we get this email. Doesn't work, doesn't work. But, but we notice even on the German, remember on the, 
uh, so many members of the American uh, soccer team are these, I guess, what, black Germans who are... I mean, the German soccer team. The, well, the German soccer team, but, but a few of the American soccer players. Because remember, the, the, the coach of the American soccer team... Klinsmann, yeah, he's yeah. he's the German, the, the god of, of German uh, soccer, and he's the one they say who created the championship that they deservedly won this year, and he's trying to do the same thing, this grassroots uh, thing with with America, and I think we're all the Germans are actually very excited about that. They're not really American sport fans because there's a rivalry. One thing Germany beat the U.S. basketball team a few years back, and I couldn't even go into work because <laughs> <laughs> they still see you. As an American, of course, I am an American, I, well, well, yeah. and if they forget, I remind them. <laughs> but no, but you were telling the story though about when you see other black people, it's important to know how to greet them or something like that. Yeah, the Africans, uh, you, know, you might greet them in French, might say salut, or speak to them in German, which is the, because we're in Germany, and some of these guys are, are you're meeting, they might have on daishiki, but they're doctors and engineers and stuff who had to leave war zones. Uh, and come there to save their lives and their families, and you have to retreat them, treat them with respect. Not think, oh, this is some guy from the bush who's you know coming into a big city. You know, I embarrassed the heck out of myself. A guy from the fitness from my uh, gym uh, came from I got one of one of the big, big, biggest cities in in, in Africa. He's well, you know, how big how big a city do you come from? There are five million people. Was, oh. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Nothing with grass skirts and, and pigs hanging up in front of the house, you know. Mm. And this kind of thing, I think Americans would be very arrogant about about our culture and the way we greet people can co- sort of present that. And that's why sometimes Africans will do uh, will go around the corner to keep from speaking to an American. Really? An American black? Or just yeah, an American black. Really? Well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised about that. All right. We were uh, talking in the elevator last week about, I made a comment that it Europe was more racist than America, and there was a gentleman in front of us and turned around and said, no way, America's far more racist than Europe. What, 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 what do you think? It's different. There's racism in Germany. Germany is different. You know, there's the, the Turkish situation right now uh, where you have the Turkish people have been a part of Germany since after the war, and, and, and the Italians, because they were looking for people to come over and do certain kinds of jobs. So you've got a lot of the Turkish people who have been there for several generations, and people who are industrious, who start businesses, are working for the banks and are, are uh, police officers and that sort of thing. But then in the last few years, there's another kind of Turkish people coming there, uh, guys who are bringing some 16-year-old girl from the mountains of Turkey who doesn't know them to ma- get married. These arranged marriages, and they bring in all their cousins to come in and, and get uh, medical care, all very, very legal. But it's the question, what are they, what are they giving back to the system? And the Germans have a problem because of this Nazi past, they can't deal with people trying to destroy the fabric of, of the country. They don't have any mechanism for that. I'm not just talking about these casual things. I'm think talking about people who really have made it a point of not trying to speak the language and are breaking laws. They, they can't be, you can't get rid of them because they don't want to seem like, you know, we're being Nazis and we only want people who are German. This, when people come to America... Uh, they want to be Americans. I was in Rome a few years ago, and you listen to the Indian kids. Uh, I don't mean Indians. I mean, they're from India. The Indian kids speaking Italian, you can tell they're proud of the way that they're speaking the language. And in Germany, this this pride isn't there because of the past. If it wasn't for, you know, Steffi Goff and the football team, the soccer team, it would be really difficult for them to show this pride at all. And that's that's a problem. So they have some people we all feel are kind of trying to destroy the fabric of, of this country, and you can't deal with them. But yes, of course, there's racism. 
you know, they're talking about those Russians and why we have to give them money just because they're a part of, 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 of Europe that used to belong to Germany and they got run off and that's our money and why are we doing this and, and putting all the Russians kind of in a, in, in a basket. Uh, yeah, they, they can do that too. My, uh, my guest is uh, Gerard Jeffrey Roden, who always happens to be my little brother, who's a uh, operatic tenor in Germany. Um, lived in Germany full time since 1989, and uh, he's in town for a couple of weeks to uh, to visit his annual New York visit, and um, come by and uh, kind of enlighten us. Let me ask you this: um, Are we supposed to be taking a break? Uh, break? Yeah. yeah. Thursday. Th- well, we, you know, we're, we're uh, normally this is when Seth comes in and talks about DraftKings, and this is thing we got to do, but, I, you know, we don't have to really do that, right? Uh, or do you? Because you don't have DraftKings. Do they have DraftKings for soccer? I think they do. Oh, no. I don't know if they well, have DraftKings for soccer. That's a good question. Why don't they? I wouldn't be surprised. Hey, thank you. I'm my own mic man. The <laughs> wine man is now the mic man. <laughs> MVP. I feel like when I hold a mic like this, I should, I should be singing, but uh, obviously hey, with, you, with you here, I'm not going to sing. Is there something you could sing? Short? Can you, sing, can you say, put them on the draft spot. kings? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give you some. We'll, we'll keep talking, and I'll find something. Find I'll, I'll just jump in, jump in okay. and sing a couple of notes as I'm gladly. Uh, well, uh, Jamal, we could say draft kings. Use the code Roden, R-H-O-D-E-N. I hit golf, British Open. I won 25 bucks. I heard. I yeah, heard. I had a few golfers. How does that, how's the golf one work? You pick six golfers, and okay. you, you, you know you got to spend 50 grand. Mm-hmm. I stayed away from Spieth because he was too expensive, but he, and I just didn't think he was, you know, I just thought he was too hyped, but he ended up playing to the hype, right? He, he right, almost yeah. pulled it out. At Osterhusen and Streb, and I had a few, you know, I, I got it from somebody else. I didn't know what I was doing. Right, right. But right. Uh, I still won a couple of bucks, so I'll take it. I also played a little baseball. I won, I, I played a $3 game. I won six bucks. Wow, okay. nice. Okay. I'm, a, I'm actually in the, I'm in the midst of it's a one It's fun, game. Bill. It's fun. It's not like I'm not trying to feed the family with it. I'm just trying <laughs> to have a little entertainment. Give you another reason to watch the game. Yeah. It's a good time. DraftKings is a lot of fun. I'm really excited for football as well. That's like that's yeah, that's what I'm waiting for. Then I'm gonna go head first into it. Then I'm really gonna go broke and like you yeah. know have my family on the street. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a hit. DraftKings. No, kidding. We're kidding. It's all for fun. It's a good time. DraftKings. You, 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 you just get a dollar. Yeah. You know, if you're a degenerate, you're gonna be degenerate somewhere. Don't be. You don't have to be a degenerate. DraftKings. There's levels. You know, you can play for a quarter on DraftKings. Play for a dollar. You play for ten dollars. You want to be a high roller? You can play for fifteen hundred a game. It's a little crazy, but DraftKings is awesome. Jamal likes it. I like it. We're gonna get Bill into it. Yeah, we're gonna time. get you into it. Yeah. yeah. Well, if they, if they gonna, we should have, we should just draft the team. Yeah. Draft sponsor my ne- show. Next week, yeah. next week I'm gonna have a Bill Roden team, baseball. Yeah. His I, favorite I, sport. Okay. All right. So um, DraftKings. Yeah. Roden. R H O D E N. DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com. Back to Bill Roden and friends on sports. Our guest in studio is Gerard Jeffrey Roden, opera singer extraordinaire. Um, just in a couple minutes, we've got left before we uh, we're going to Koreatown tonight, right? We've got a big big dinner. There's a really great restaurant Koreatown. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, but there's one in particular, it's Don Bogan, I think. Um, maybe I will get him to be a sponsor of the show. Um, but it's really cool. We're going to meet your uh, your niece, my daughter. Right, and her long time, her long well, her boyfriend into uh, putting the, putting the pressure on. Him. Where, where's he from again? Uh, he's from uh, well, he's from the United States. He's born in the United States. His family's from Nigeria, 
and Indu uh, went to Harvard. Now he's in Harvard Business School. Yeah, she could do worse than and that. Harvard Law School simultaneously. You know, and uh, so we're gonna meet. You'll meet her tonight, and well, we got to figure out who's gonna pay for this. DraftKings can DraftKings. DraftKings. Uh, you gotta win. You gotta win. Uh, gotta win DraftKings. You gotta win first. Sponsorship. Yeah, oh, sponsorship. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, that's another. That's another segment. Um, but George, just just uh, just tell us I'm, again. I'm, I'm curious. You told me the story about uh, you know you you finally got this gig in Wiesbaden, the chorus gig. But you wanted to be a soloist, and I guess I, that's sort of like I guess like um, I don't know if the musical equivalent is, but you were in the chorus, but you wanted to be a soloist. So just take us through, you know, Wiesbaden, Munster, and, and where you are now, and uh, Ulm. Am I saying that right? Ulm, Ulm, Germany, which is where in the south? Yeah, between Munich, between München and Stuttgart, between Munich and Stuttgart, mm-hmm. in, in the south, it's town of about one hundred and fifteen thousand people. Uh, beautiful town, right on the Danube River. But anyhow, this uh, is that. Yeah, that's where you live. You live on the Danube. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, this uh, I was in Wiesbaden for a year and a half, and I started doing auditions. This guy you can't stop him. Uh, started doing some auditions for solo jobs, and landed up in Münster, Westfalen, a beautiful, beautiful college town, and I was there for three years. After those three years, I sang there as a guest uh, in two productions, uh, La Traviata and uh, Peter Maxwell Davies' uh, opera. And then I started working in Ulm. And I was, my first roles there were Werther, Cosi van Tutte, Inferando, and Eugen Onegin. That's where I met actually also these Wozzeck and Tambour Major. And that's where I met up with Angela Dinoke. We did Cosi together. And that, I was doing that for eight years as a soloist there. Mm-hmm. And I guess we didn't talk about my education. I learned a lot of things in the University of Illinois, but what I never really learned how to do is sing. I didn't know the, the I never really learned the, the technical basis that I needed to be really successful. And probably some people did when Jerry Hadley was there at the time I was there. And some people said that he actually learned the singing uh, afterwards. Uh, Eric Halverson was there when I was there, had a fantastic voice. And I think that's generally, it's not a University of Illinois uh, bad thing is we turn a lot of very good singers in the University of Illinois, but everybody who's a professor can't necessarily teach the nuts and bolts. And I think if you're lucky and you have people who sing well and you can advise them and coach them and bring more out, mm-hmm. but I was someone who was much more complicated. It wasn't very obvious what the talent was there other than I could make music. I was someone who found a way to make the music sound interesting, even if the voice wasn't really functioning the way it should be. And uh, I started running into problems after a while. I just wasn't feeling my voice was responding always the way that I wanted it to respond. It wasn't growing the way I wanted it to grow, and it just didn't feel organic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was putting me under a lot of pressure. And I talked to the theater. I said, you know, I really I need a timeout. I need to stop. I need to do something else. Are there any other jobs in the theater that uh, I might be able to do? And I said that two years before I actually stopped. Mm-hmm. And they found a job for me in the administration. It's called the... Betrieb's bureau. They didn't take you to like the, you know, the janitorial closet. They said, "Listen, why don't you?" Why don't you do? No, like <laughs> they they found a job that paid about the same, uh, that had uh, a responsibility, and because I had an image, obviously, in, in the town, they weren't trying to punish me. I guys saved their butts a couple of times, and they they knew that, and that also contributed to my problem. It's not like I completely lost my voice, but at the end, I just wasn't able to sing 
as with as co- much confidence and as solidly as I would like to have. And I just wanted to stop. I didn't want to sing anymore. I said, I'm going to stop singing and went in this administration job. And one of the conductors made me practice with him once a week singing Strauss Lieder, uh, art, uh, art songs, and just to try to stay fit. And I ran into a soprano, soprano with whom I had sung in Rostock, and she was working with the Ravine Institute for Functional uh, Vocal Technique. Mm-hmm. And she told me about that, gave me a couple of lessons, and it turned me around. Really, and I had one hour with her, and I started learning things about breathing and how the voice functioned, and I started, it was fun. It was fun again. And I said, okay, I'm gonna work on this for a while and see what happens. And for me, the highlight of coming out of uh, a situation where people say, oh, he'll never sing again. Uh, the voice is, is abgesungen. They say, if you just, you know, the voice is damaged, it's not going to work. And a year and a half after that, I sang a Mahler Achter Symphony, the Mahler Eighth Symphony, did it well. And that's one of the hardest, biggest things that a tenor can get to do. And that was a sign for me that I forgave myself for all the things I didn't learn. And... Uh, started learning again and after that time I didn't didn't just practice for myself I started teaching I started being asked to teach and that's quasi that's where I am right now I'm singing after the three years in the administration a new head of the theater came in he wanted to get me back on stage and there was a job open in the opera chorus I took that and I've been singing small medium and large roles in addition to the opera chorus work as some of the colleagues do also and teaching a lot you're teaching um this, uh, you're in the chorus, obviously. You teach at an acting academy. You're a vocal coach of the boys' choir. You've got a gospel choir in Germany, which is kind of interesting. And uh, you're a guest teacher at the University of Ulm. So you, same with things kind of coming full circle. You're having a good time. Your, uh, you know, German soccer team is kind of happening. You're, uh, well, that's you're, not, you're, that's not, <laughs> I, I clap for them, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm an American. I cheer for the American team. When the Americans play the German, I'm really happy, really happy for their success, but it's their success. And the Cubs, you're still, the Cubs are still as we speak. It, it, it's, it's a good life. You, you asked me the question uh, a couple hours ago, what can American singers do to, to work over there? And the first thing I say, you know, learn how to sing, because there's a difference between having a season for 10 months where you're singing all the time and singing one opera three or four times, maybe a few months later singing, some, singing something else. You really need to know what you're doing. And when you're working with your teachers in the university, you know, make, you, make sure you can sing Mozart. Make sure you can sing these art songs. Make sure you can sing a, a, a scale uh, cleanly that your, vocal, your, your vowels are good. Learn how to sing. And when you go over there and start auditioning, something good could happen. Oh great! Can you leave us with something? We've been trying to. We've been trying to. Draws a profession. So I'm not giving this away. We've been trying to get him to sing something. So man, I, I do this for for pay. I don't just come into a no, studio. That's, that's just, not, yeah. just, I'm on, I'm on vacation. That's I know. You want me to sing? No, no. Listen. No. How about pay for it? Pay for it. You'll you'll, you'll, you'll pay for it. You sing, Bill. Huh? Yeah. You sing. Bill, you can do Pagliacci. Yeah. I'll give you I'll give you I'll give you a phrase. And I don't want not not that I want you to sing, Bill. No, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Save us. I'll give you because uh, you're talking about it uh, how my life is, and there's a sentence from Franz Lea, Friends, life is worth living. And it's from the opera Judita, and I think it'll be a good thing for you to, to close the presentation. I'm gonna get a little bit further away from the mic and just sing the opening phrase of the song uh, that I like to sing in concerts. Das Leben ist lebenswert. 
So <laughs> that's what I do awesome. for a living. Thank you guys for having me. It's thank really you. an honor to be here, and thanks so much. Gerard, thank you so much. This has been really great. We kind of have to do this. I'm learning more about you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.